Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you, on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven, for that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that your spirit be with us as we reflect upon it so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. Last week, we heard about Jesus recruiting his first disciples. It was a transition point in his ministry from preaching and teaching on his own toward an expanded mission. This week, our story picks up a fair bit later on in the tale. So before I jump into today's scene, let's just do a quick overview of the things that we've skipped over. We had a couple of the well-known scenes that gets told in Sunday school. Jesus healing a leper and the dramatic tale of a group of friends lowering their paralyzed comrade through a roof so that Jesus could heal him. These acts of healing prompt a confrontation with the Pharisees who question his authority to heal and to forgive sins. After this, Jesus recruits the tax collector Levi to be one of his followers. Levi hosts a banquet at his house where Jesus and his disciples eat alongside a number of other tax collectors. Once again, this raises complaints from the Pharisees who ask why they would associate with tax collectors and sinners. This prompts the famous response from Christ those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This interaction with the Pharisees flows into another set of questions. 
The Pharisees want to know why Jesus and his followers don't act the same way as they do or that the disciples of John do by frequent fasting accompanied by prayer. Again, we get two of Jesus' most quotable moments. First, in an apparent analogy to himself, he responds by saying that guests at a wedding do not feast while they are with the bridegroom, but know that the bridegroom will be taken away, and then they can fast again. This analogy is immediately followed by the parable about new wine being placed into new wineskins, but those who drink old wine are content with old wine. The story continues on, and we get another confrontation with the Pharisees. This time, Jesus and his disciples pluck some grain from a field they are walking through, and they eat it on the Sabbath. The Pharisees accuse them of doing work that's forbidden on the Sabbath, to which Jesus responds with a story about David and his companions eating food that they were not supposed to eat. On a later Sabbath, we see Jesus perform a healing, which once again raises the ire of the Pharisees. And finally, Jesus calls together his disciples and chooses 12 of them to be his apostles, meaning his messengers or his envoys. All of these little stories help to set the scene for the passage that we heard today. So far, what Luke has given us are little glimpses of Jesus' teaching and ministry in piecemeal. We've seen that others disagree with what he has to say and with how he conducts himself. But here on the plain, Christ is able to proclaim his teaching to a great mass of people, not just from the surrounding area, but from far off places like Tyre and Sidon. And how does Jesus begin his teaching? How does he set forth what he believes to this great mass of people? He starts with a very simple message. It's a message of blessings and woes. It's a declaration that some of those who have come to hear him are in fact in God's favor, and others need to stop and think about themselves. The twist, though, is that the way he doles out blessings was likely as shocking then as it would be today. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, and the grieving. In other words, blessed are those of you who society looks down upon. Blessed are those that others would shame for their condition. If Jesus were teaching these words today, he might add to the list, blessed are those from shithole countries. Blessed are those with disabilities. Blessed are those on public assistance. Blessed are those who are judged by the color of their skin. Blessed are those who are shamed and reviled for how they identify or who they love. Because here's the thing, times may change, but people stay the same. As a culture, we are as bound up in concepts of shame and honor as the ancient Near East was. As a culture, we look down upon the less fortunate and we assume that they have some moral defect that causes them to be poor or to suffer from disease. And the inverse is true as well. We look at people who are successful and we attach to them some concept of moral uprightness. It's why as a society we have a hard time accepting the truth 
when powerful, successful people commit wrongs. It's why we as a culture devise ways to paint people who commit sexual assault as victims whose lives are being destroyed. It's why we look for any opportunity that we can to indict the character of young black men who are murdered in the street while ignoring video evidence that condemns the police officers who killed them. The symptoms might look different, but the underlying disease is just the same. And Jesus names it for what it is. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man, he continues. Jesus knows that his people are the people on the margins of society. His people, God's people, are the people that no respectable person would be caught hanging around with. And when Jesus talks about being excluded or reviled or defamed, he doesn't mean feeling persecuted because someone says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. He isn't talking about the hurt feelings that Christians get when they're told they can't force other people to pray with them. He isn't talking about the loss of control that Christians feel when they're told that they can't dictate the terms of someone else's life. He's talking about the kind of hurt that is experienced by our LGBTQ siblings when they are told that God doesn't love them. He's talking about the exclusion that is enacted when they are told that God doesn't want them serving as ministers in God's church. It's not a new thing for people with privilege and comfort to craft narratives of victimization for themselves. No one wants to look at the teachings of Jesus and think that they would be in the group that he's scolding. And so we still have to be vigilant in the stories that we tell about ourselves so that we don't fall into this trap. And sometimes it can be easier for us to, to fall into that trap because the language of the Bible is different enough from the language of everyday speech that we can distance ourselves from it. Anyone who knows my feelings about biblical translations knows that I'm not a fan of the message because it often falls short of capturing the meaning of the word. But in this case, I think it does a rather admirable job in relaying the cautions that Jesus is setting forth in his teaching. Where the list of woes begins, the message says this. But it's trouble ahead if you think you have it made. What you have is all you'll ever get. And it's trouble ahead if you're satisfied with yourself. Yourself will not satisfy you for long. And it's trouble ahead if you think life's all fun and games. There's suffering to be met, and you're going to meet it. There's trouble ahead when you live only for the approval of others, saying what flatters them, doing what indulges them. Popularity contests are not truth contests. Look how many scoundrel preachers were approved by your ancestors. Your task is to be true, not popular. We are at a point in the life of our denomination and in the life of our nation when these words ring especially loud. Your task is to be true, not popular. And the ultimate truth is God. And as I've said before, God is love. 
So to be faithful to the truth in these times is to be faithful to the power of love. To receive the blessings of God means to align ourselves with the marginalized people whom God blesses. It means sacrificing our comfort, our contentment, and our reputation for the sake of love. It's one thing to say that we have love for those whom God loves, but if we don't take risks on their behalf, then what good is our love? If we remain silent in the face of others speaking lies about them, then what good is our love? If we see them being excluded and choose to protect our own inclusion in the group, then what good is our love? Our God is a God that picks sides, and our God picks the side of the vulnerable and the oppressed. We are called to do the same. We are called to live, leave the lives that we have and to follow Jesus wherever his love takes us. And we need to be careful about where we choose to stand, because if we forget this calling, we're setting ourselves up for woe. Amen. <laughs>